What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, and welcome to the 11th episode of The Sulfuric Secrets, a podcast from between two worlds. Today, we return to the 1850s, a tumultuous time in history where it seemed that the whole world was changing, because it was. If we want to understand how we sprouted an alternative timeline in the 2040s in the Sulfuric Secrets universe, we have to go back to see which seeds were planted in the 1850s. That's the thing about secrets. They don't occur chronologically. Sometimes our understanding of a situation isn't jarred asunder because of some future development, but by uncovering something from the past. Episode 11 of The Sulfuric Secrets is called The Secret History. Please be advised that this episode contains mature content that might not be appropriate for all audiences. When I said the flayed man was nobody, it was meant in a literal, not descriptive sense. Slavery is an institution that turns humans with thoughts, dreams, hopes and desires into nobodies, and was a source of great wealth for a number of nations. Jean-Jacques Quadin was born in 1784 and grew up in the Pearl of the Antilles, now known as Haiti, as a slave. The picturesque vision of a slow, relaxing, tropical island contrasted its reality. A monotonous, brutal existence in France's most prosperous colony. Each year, 700 vessels brought in the equivalent of two-thirds of France's foreign investment and left with sugar, coffee, cacao, indigo, and cotton. The workers that made it happen saw none of these riches. Floggings, castrations, mutilations, and amputations that the French colonialists doled out were known as brutal, even by the standards of the day. The 700,000 West African slaves outnumbered the French colonial population 10 to 1, the French masters, or, as they were known, the Grand Blanc, were scared. Their solution, like all clever ruling elites, was to create subdivisions within society to distract people from the fact that they were everyone's common enemy. And so, the social class of the Affranchi was born. Freed slaves who were unable to access the resources or work opportunities of their white counterparts but were able to own slaves. Although there is no fortune in a life of servitude, Jean-Jacques was lucky in that at the age of eight, he caught the eye of Francois-Dominique Toussaint Louverture. Louverture was a flawed man. As an affranchi, he also owned slaves, but was also the man who led the first and only successful slave uprising in history. 
Louverture was an exceptionally smart man and recognised the same in Jean-Jacques. Under the paranoid candlelight of huts deep within the slave-run sustenance crops, Louverture taught his secret understudy all that he knew and admired. The ancient history of the continent, sciences, art, languages, philosophy. Jean-Jacques devoured the knowledge. But it was the art of warfare that turned out to be the most useful. And sadly, the one that Louverture never got to see Jean-Jacques use in person. At the time of his reign, Napoleon was considered by many to be the literal Antichrist. So, when in 1803, Napoleon called Louverture to France to broker a peace deal between their armies, and then immediately betrayed him, throwing him into a damp, dark jail cell to die. The accusation felt fitting for Jean-Jacques, who burned with a desire for revenge. But Napoleon's machinations were far too late. The Battle of Vertiers in 1804 completed the Haitian Revolution. Voodoo is a complex religious system that can trace its roots back to ancient Ethiopia, Egypt and Assyria, not only inspiring the same level of complexity and devotion as Christianity, Islam and Judaism, but possibly predating them as well. It was also known as a key part of the Haitian Revolution as well. In a way, all religious practices are like light on the electromagnetic spectrum. When split, they each tell their truth in part. But united, they provide the ultimate knowledge of the universe and existence. And so, the light that humans can see, like the conspicuous practices of the Abrahamic religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, only comprise a minuscule fraction of the full electromagnetic spectrum. Other religions and practices make up the hidden, invisible forms of light on this spectrum and can be as benign as radio waves or as profoundly dangerous and terrifying as radioactive gamma rays. Coincidentally, the term occult roughly translates as hidden from eye's view. Although Jean-Jacques had used the visible spectrum of voodoo it was the other occult practices that secured victory in the Haitian Revolution. The ancient knowledge of the Pythagorean school and Goetia, taught by Louverture. And, most importantly, the terrifying and dangerous practice taught to him by the escaped slaves who hid in the dark mountains of Saint-Domingue. The art of Jobby. Perhaps it was innate. Perhaps it was the Jobby, but as a soldier during the revolution, not only did Jean-Jacques have the strength and toughness of a lion, but in private conversation he had the mouth of a fox. His extraordinary persuasive ability had convinced a sympathetic Grand Blanc to gift him a mirror with a lining as silver as his tongue. At age 20, in 1804, Jean-Jacques looked into his scrying mirror, asking where he could find more of the knowledge that he sought. 
he saw brilliant visions of rolling golden sands and colorful bazaars and knew where he would go next. Magical inversion is a powerful concept. Tarot cards, the pentagram, and the crucifix can all be inversed for potent meanings, or as a calling card for Satanism. But, as Alistair Crowley once derisively noted about Satanists, despite their pretended devotion to Lucifer or Belial, they are sincere Christians, and inferior Christians at that. Realizing this lesson, Jean-Jacques sought one final act of magical inversion to sever his connection to slavery. Jean-Jacques smuggled himself on a French slave ship bound for the African kingdom of Ardra, now known as Southern Benin. Toussaint Louverture had mentioned these shores as where his ancestors had originally been taken. Remembering Louverture's recounting of the ancient story of Archimedes, Jean-Jacques pulled out his beloved silver mirror, and within two hours of mooring, the good ship to Vivre du Foix. had been burnt down to black powder on the white powder of the ivory shores. The Frenchman returned with a group of kings, noblemen, and commoners alike bound in nakedness and indignity. Seeing the faded charcoal memory of their death vessel, it was not long before the same warring tribe that had helped capture these men and women were now helping them. The enemy of my enemy is my friend and the French colonialists had left themselves in an unforgivable position of weakness. It was an important moment for Jean-Jacques, as he saw the colonialists torn apart limb from limb. He had been imbued permanently with the spirit of revolution. After his brief stopover in West Africa, Jean-Jacques made his way through the continent to Egypt, eventually crossing the Mediterranean Sea to reach the Ottoman Empire, or modern-day Turkey, by 1805. It turns out that Jean-Jacques had not been invisible along the way. Although his experience as a soldier and a combat medic in a successful revolution made him a useful mercenary at the time, his magical abilities caught the attention of the leader of the Ottomans, Sultan Selim III. Selim was from a royal line who practiced Islamic mysticism, and it was not long before Jean-Jacques was able to talk his way into a close position in the court, first as his spiritual advisor, and eventually as a military advisor as well. But Jean-Jacques felt an internal conflict. Selim also kept slaves an army of African men who he castrated and then set up in his harem full of wives and concubines. Jean-Jacques was able to pass as one of these men, sometimes even fooling people into thinking he was their leader, the title of Chief Black Eunuch. And all the while, continuing to whisper in Selim's ear, helping to revitalize their flailing military, and building a respectable trove of wealth for himself, 
This all changed when Jean-Jacques investigated a suspicion that he just couldn't shake. He had been drawn to work with Salim, despite his flaws, because he had declared war on France just a few years before. Jean-Jacques still burnt with hatred for what Napoleon had done to his mentor a few years before. And an enemy of my enemy was a friend to him. And so, when Jean-Jacques found out that Salim was now working with the French, something inside him snapped. The official story goes that by 1808, Salim III was murdered by his chief black eunuch in his own harem with a couple of other men. What they won't tell you was that Jean-Jacques had used his extraordinary powers of persuasion to convince him to do it. Orchestrating a political assassination felt good. But now, at the age of 24, Jean-Jacques felt like it was time to move on. And so his attention turned to Wallachia and Moldavia. Selim III had been obsessed with them before his death, declaring war on Russia when they invaded the region. Jean-Jacques didn't know it yet, but this region, with its rolling fields, would eventually be the place that he would die. King Solomon was a controversial figure of ancient times. Christianity, Islam and Judaism all hold different views on whether he was a prophet and messenger of God, a venerated saint, or a sinner and idolater. Solomon ascended to the throne of the United Kingdom of Israel at the age of 15, ruling from 970 to 931 BCE. In the Bible passage Kings 11.5.9, we see how some of this controversy arose. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord. Solomon built a high palace for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. It's interesting that even the Bible acknowledges the existence of other gods. They just don't like them. And according to dark and dusty grimoires like the Lesser Key of Solomon, with a secret ring and hexagramic seal, the King Solomon was given the power to bind 72 extraordinarily powerful demons, varying from good to bad in a brass cauldron. According to legend, Solomon then used these spirits, known as the Goetia, to build his famous temple. Now, if you think you've already seen this story in a movie, that is, a spirit in the Middle Eastern desert imprisoned in a small brass container in a cave until he is summoned to fulfill the wish of its user, it's because you have. Considering that Jean-Jacques had summoned any number of these 72 demons of the Goetia at various points in his life, for various reasons, it eventually became very clear to him that the seal on Solomon's original cauldron 
must have been broken long ago. Jean-Jacques had been brought to these desert lands based on his pursuit of Solomon's knowledge. But now, something had occurred to him. His ability as a wandering soldier had been useful, but it was always his ability as a mystic that had earned the respect and trust of leaders of various nations. It was as if they already had a familiarity with this world. The great, powerful, evil men. Even those he despised with breathless anger like Napoleon Bonaparte might merely be puppets under the Goetia's influence, whether they knew it or not. It was a long period between 1808 and 1852 for Jean-Jacques. Between the ages of 24 and 68 had meant decades of political manoeuvring, whispering in the ears of royals and heads of state, much like Rasputin would a few decades later. And the entire time, he was slowly building his wealth, and searching, relentlessly for the esoteric secrets of each nation he visited. Jean-Jacques would assist nations if they fit into one of two categories. One, they were working against the French, or two, it was a revolution. Sometimes, like with Poland in 1812, he would work against them. Then, later on, work with them, like in the 1830s, depending on who they were allied with. And in 1848, at the age of 64, his efforts were rewarded, and his worst fears confirmed. A remote, hidden cavern imbued with dark energy. And inside was a brass cauldron, inscribed with glyphs and sigils, and a pile of jewellery sitting in its base. He had found Solomon's cauldron, and the seal was most definitely broken. And so, now an old man of 68, Jean-Jacques conducted his last and most significant act of political intervention. Jean-Jacques had been hearing some disturbing rumours regarding the Wali, or head of state, for a now united Egypt and Sudan. His name was Abbas Helmi. Abbas Helmi was stripping down every reformation that his anti-French grandfather had put in place many years ago including the access to education for women. Abbas had a well-documented love of horses. He kept meticulous records of their origins and breeding histories, and fed them the milk of 300 camels from a custom-built farm. This equine obsession was a cover for an even deeper obsession. Abbas had been sending dangerous secret packs of emissaries around Arabia, under the guise of purchasing high-quality studs and mares to try and discover the location of the original cauldron of Solomon the King. The survivors of these encounters gave the packs of hunters a name to both describe their wolf-like behavior and their preferred method of torture. Rollo. A bus, or the Wali of the Rollos, didn't yet know that the seal of Solomon's cauldron was broken and that he could summon the Goetia at any time. But with the near unlimited resources of a head of state, he could find the cauldron faster than Jean-Jacques did and doom mankind soon enough. 
As an old man, Jean-Jacques knew his options to stop Rollo were far more limited now. There was no drawing him out, as a bus was infamous for never leaving his palace. And of course, there was no way to attack where he hid, considering its impressive fortification. And so now was the time for the second magical inversion of Jean-Jacques' life. He closed the political puppet mastery chapter of his life by reenacting his first ever act of political interference, way back in 1808. On July 1854, Abbas was murdered by two of his slaves. Once again, the public story goes that Abbas's rampant abuse had spurred them, including one horror story of nailing a red-hot horseshoe to a stable hand's foot, who had mistreated one of his horses. But it was Jean-Jacques who had whispered in the right ears, inspiring them to commit the act of murder. And now, after a lifetime of political manipulation, he was left dismayed. Even when he was trying to help, sometimes he left the situation worse than when he had entered. And he realized that for the final act of his life, he would have to fix the problem at its source. Jean-Jacques sought refuge from the desert sands of the Middle East, which by then had become dangerous for him. He eventually settled on the Principality of Wallachia, who he had helped many years before in their successful revolution of 1848. And now the year was 1855. Jean-Jacques was 71. A lifetime of abusing the dark and dangerous Jobby and Goetia had kept his body young and sprightly looking. But now he was resolute to reverse the damage he had done. In a lifetime of difficult decisions, it was here that Jean-Jacques had to make the most difficult decision of his entire life. Assassinating Abbas had brought two things to Jean-Jacques. The first was immense wealth. The second was the leadership of Abbas's pack of hunters. And if Abbas was the Wali of the Rollos, then Jean-Jacques thought it fitting to give himself a title that showed he had bested and now outranked the Wali of Rollos. And so he took the Arabic term for king and named himself Emir Rollo. Of course, Western society is unfamiliar with the term Emir, so he thought to simplify it by removing the E and the I so that it would just be Mr. Rollo. In the final four years of his life, Mr. Rollo built the copper basement, a cauldron both large and strong enough to permanently hold the entire Goetia, so that they may never tempt a world leader again. But he would need bait. Although serfdom had been abolished in Wallachia, nearby Transylvania did not have the same liberty until the Transylvanian Statute 4 of 1848. In 1858, Mr. Rollo found a wandering man who had grown up in serfdom and was now enjoying his freedom. This was also a man who was a nobody that no one would miss. With his knowledge of medicine and alchemy, this feeble 70-year-old did not need to drag him as he came of his own free will. 
When Mr. Rollo had completed the ritual of the copper basement, his final thoughts were one of satisfaction. He had done the right thing and saved humanity from the evil of the Goetia. But he also died unaware that this moment was the point that his corruption was complete, where he had completed the third and final magical inversion of his life. A man born a slave who had fought for the liberation of his people and then fought for decades for the emancipation of those in servitude had now condemned a man to both physical and spiritual slavery for all of eternity. You've just listened to episode 11 of The Sulfuric Secrets. I hope you like hearing the true story of the rise and fall of Mr. Rollo. Next week is the penultimate episode of season 1. Expect more surprises, twists and turns before this story is out. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to show the love on Patreon. A lot of work goes into the research, writing, recording and editing, and all amounts are a help. Be sure to follow, comment, and subscribe on the social media channels as well. Until then, thank you, and good night. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.